Hey everybody, welcome to Listen Money Matters. The art of living is more like wrestling than dancing. My name is Thomas and I'm here as always with my friend Andrew. Andrew, how are you and what are you drinking this morning, man? Good, dude. Uh, it was a late light. It was a late night last night, so I'm just uh, just drinking water. What are you drinking? Yeah, I am drinking uh, organic chai tea, but it's like a mix between green and black because mm. the store didn't have just regular black chai. Uh, it's kind of weird. It's like not as spicy as I'm used to. I, I just really oh, how I feel about it. I was really drawn into the glass or the mug that you're drinking it from because you're, <laughs> you're drinking and it just says I see dumb people. I, I feel like it was meant for me. <laughs> no joke. So uh, I've been drinking out of this mug because it's the biggest mug I own. And I'm like, I want a lot of tea. And then I realized yesterday when Anna was in the room with me, I was like, oh, man, tomorrow when Andrew gets on to podcast with me, I'm going to be drinking out of this mug. <laughs> like, it's not intentional, but it's funny. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. Sure. <laughs> she said I should use it in one of my videos. I don't know how well that would go over. <laughs> But yeah, today's catchphrase is the art of living is more like wrestling than dancing. Uh, that's a quote from Marcus Aurelius, probably from Meditations, but it comes to us by way of at Scott underscore D underscore I on Twitter. And uh, yeah, thank you for that catchphrase. And if you want to give us your own catchphrases, we're on Twitter at Money Matters Man or on Facebook, Listen Money Matters. Send us your catchphrases. We need clever catchphrases. We like, do. uh, yoga for your finance analogies and <laughs> dirty puns come on we need some good stuff here yes so send them in cool so today uh our guest in the show his name is tyler white and he's a former estate planner and he's now a military lawyer how's it going tyler it's going well how are you guys good good i'm sitting here knowing almost nothing about estate planning so join the club <laughs> <laughs> i don't know andrew do you know anything about it yeah, I, I know that a lot of people ask about it, and okay. I think it has to do with like wills and stuff. I, I, I don't know, Tyler, what, what do you do as an estate planner? I, I think that's basically right. Wills are one big giant feature of an estate plan. Um, ultimately, it's just what you want to do with your stuff when you die in a really kind of morbid way of looking at it. It's uh, where do you want your stuff to go? How do you want it to get distributed? Do you want to put limitations on it? And and it can include things like um, powers of attorney, uh, some other documents that would kick in or help you if you're incapacitated or something like that. So it's mostly geared towards what happens when you pass away or when your spouse passes away. Um, but there are some uh, additional documents that, that can help you out throughout your lifetime in a limited way. I, I want to go into the will piece because I, I there's a lot of stuff that I'm curious about. I know we've had questions, but I, I almost wonder sometimes because I actually don't have a will and I wonder like how necessary is a will because if I were to die, doesn't my stuff just go to like Laura or if, like we both died and we had a kid, doesn't it, it like doesn't it kind right. of automatically do the right thing? It usually, uh, usually the, the state you live in, the, they're called intestacy laws. It's to die intestate means you die without a will. So the intestacy laws, um, will govern what happens to your stuff when you die. Um, so in a lot of states, um, kind of what you described is basically right. So your assets would go to your spouse, um, or if she were to die first, her assets would go to, go to you. But then it starts to get kind of complicated. If you don't have kids after a certain dollar threshold, half of that will go to your, her parents or half of it will go to your parents if you're the one to die. Um, 
sometimes the state intestacy laws um, work out and they're basically what you would want to have happen anyways. Um, but sometimes they're not. And, and it can really kind of depend. And, and sometimes that's where a conversation with a state planning lawyer or a state planner, if you want to call them that, um, that can be kind of valuable just to see, like, here's my situation. Here's my deal. So is this is this what how it would be treated in this state? We because Laura and I don't have kids right now. So if I were to die, like it is possible that half of like my stuff, our stuff, whatever would go to my parents. Um, no. So after a certain dollar amount, I don't, uh, which state do you live in? Uh, New Jersey. Okay. So I, I don't know whether they are, um, what we call a UPC state. Um, in UPC states, which I think there's 16 of them in the U S. So the first 250 K of your assets would go to your spouse. And that's, that's how it would work. Anything above and beyond the 250 K it would go 50, 50, between your spouse and then your parents um okay which is kind of like a it's kind of like a compromise right because some people you know if you've only been married for two months or something like that um some folks might want their parents to get something um some folks might not care yeah. but that's the difficulty with not getting a will is you don't know whether um you can rely on those state laws to kind of cover how you want them to be treated or how you want your assets to be treated and it gets tricky with houses too how houses are to be treated um you know because house is a different kind of asset than you know just money sitting in a in a checking account for example you just saw it in half right <laughs> yeah exactly it's, it sounds like a good uh, premise for a sitcom right like the the parents live there with the <laughs> with the spouse yeah yeah um so I, you know, you asked the question, who, you know, do you need a will? Um, I think it's always worth checking. You know, my advice is always um, when you get married, anytime there's a big life event, that's when you might want to check in to see if that's something you want to get done. Um, the easiest uh, threshold I think that people cross is once they have kids. I think it's kind of a brainer personally. Yeah. Um, if you just get married, uh, I. I think that's less of an emergency. Like you got to get a will done. Um, I think it can still be important, still be important, especially if what you want is different than what your state would do with your assets. Mm -hmm. But um, it's always valuable. I think to just check in as, as you have different life events. Um, But definitely with kids, I would say. That makes sense. So, so these laws essentially, do they act as sort of like a flow chart of sorts for when you die? But then if you have a will, it's just like the will overrides those entirely and yeah. or is there a case where what you write in your will could not be enforceable somehow or that could is, be circumvented uh, yeah that's a good question there are some um provisions that are unenforceable okay. so um you know you think of the uh, old crusty millionaire with the younger wife um who might want to disinherit her to some extent when he passes away or just not write her into the will um yeah. You can't. You can disinherit just about anybody, uh, but you can't disinherit your spouse. And okay. I think every state. Um, so that's one example of some provisions that are unenforceable. Um, there's some case law out there that you can't. Uh, you know, some grandparents tried to condition a gift to their grandkids, provided they married someone of a certain religion. Um, oh. <laughs> so some when people try to get super creative, that's when it can sometimes backfire. What about the uh, little old ladies that try to give all their money to their cats? 
Yeah, right. Yeah, there's the yeah. I think Lenora Helmsley was was the most famous one, or she tried to give millions to her dog or something. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there, there's some crazy provisions uh, in there that that sometimes work, sometimes don't. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I guess it depends on how important it is to the person to write it down. Okay, but but in terms of whether you know, uh, in terms of whether the intestacy laws are like a flow chart, I, I guess I. The will itself is is really just a letter to the probate court judge. Um, okay. It's a letter saying this is where I want my stuff to go. It's got all the fancy features of um, a legal document. You know, it has to be witnessed. Um, it has to be done when you're legally competent. Things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really just a letter to the probate court judge saying this is where I want my stuff to go. This is who I want to be the executor to make decisions okay. for my estate. Um, and as long as those aren't in direct conflict with some state laws, those are usually almost always going to govern and the probate court is going to honor what you've written down. Okay. So, so I, I understand like um, your assets uh, can, can be divvied up by the will and, and stuff like that. But what if you had uh, like a life insurance policy or something that might pay out as a result of a type of death or, or whatever, uh, does that follow the will? Like, do you need to plan that separately with the insurance company? Like, is it possible if you know I die and I'm three hundred thousand gets paid out? That two hundred thousand goes to Laura and a hundred thousand goes to my parents. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So um, the way that we um, some of the planning that estate planners do is they look at what are probate assets and what are non probate assets. So. Um, Probatable assets um, are things that don't have a next owner listed on them. So, like your house, usually um, doesn't, you know, your deed doesn't usually say where it's going to go next if the owner passes away. Same thing with some checking accounts that are not POD accounts, Um, personal property, things like that. No idea where those are going to go next. And so, it needs a probate court, uh, needs a probate court judge to assign the dead person's property to living people. The awesome thing about life insurance payouts or things like some brokerage accounts that have contingent beneficiaries, things like that, those are non-probate assets. So who you've listed as the next beneficiary, they get it and they get it pretty quickly. Um, you know, So you just have to produce a death certificate and the insurance company, if it's a life insurance policy, they send a check to whoever you've listed as the 100% beneficiary or the 60% beneficiary or whatever. Um, those are fantastic documents to have because um, it bypasses probate. Um, it goes out quickly. So, they can yeah. they can occasionally be dangerous um, because they don't follow um, a lot of state intestacy laws. They don't follow what you've written in your will. So there's court cases of guys forgetting to change their life insurance policy um, to not name their ex-wife as mm-hmm. the 100% beneficiary, and they get mm-hmm. it. Whoever you have listed, um, that's who's going to get it. So okay. if it's an ex-spouse, somebody you normally would not want to get all of your property, um, they're going to get whoever's on whoever's name is on that number one slot. They're going to get it. Now, um, if say Thomas was a beneficiary of, of one of my investment accounts and I die, uh, it gets passed to him, but he gets taxed on it, right? Um, he, he, it would be taxable for him. Um, but it would not be and depending on the asset. Um, okay. but there wouldn't be that double estate tax, um, that a lot of people are concerned about unless you have, um, assets over a certain level. 
but so is that what's considered like the death tax yeah that's i mean that's what you hear about yeah okay and that's the what i think um doesn't get covered as much as that i I can't remember the exact percentage point but i think it's under one percent of people who are affected by that so oh so um, most people won't actually get any tax as a result of most people's estate won't be taxed. People who get income or people who get um, large sums of money, there might be some taxable event or there will likely be some taxable event for them. But there's not usually that double taxation event where the estate is taxed and then the recipient is taxed as well. But okay. if I put a Thomas on as, say, an owner before I die, then like then he won't get taxed because like I, I could – bequeath like my half or whatever to him or or is it still a taxable event because it's asset transfer well i mean if if he were contributing to it um then it would just be an asset of his like anything else um but if there was a significant transfer of assets from you to him um then that would likely be taxable to him i don't know if that makes sense um so there is usually um you know, usually the free flow of money between owners happens within a marriage, um, but it's it can happen between you know two two non married folks. Um, We're podcast married. Yes, you're <laughs> <laughs> podcast partners. That's right. Um, but in in that event, it might kind of depend on how much Thomas is contributing, if anything, or if it's essentially just a mechanism for you to transfer money to him. Um, he doesn't and really pull. His I'm money. working real hard. That's Don't right. To him. <laughs> <laughs> immediately two conflicting things i'm working hard he hasn't done shit yeah that's right um but what you've mentioned is one step that people can take as they get older as they start assigning people to um you know start naming them as joint owners or something like that on on pieces of property and often it's not necessarily done for tax reasons um but it's usually done to avoid probate um it's it's a thing that people seem to get more and more concerned about as they get older. Um, they want to try to start passing along their assets while they're alive so they don't have to wait for the probate process to shake out. So I don't know if you saw the, the conversation in the community, but Allison was asking, you know, she was, she was considering, you know, if she dies, how does her assets, you know, get handled in regards to her son? Um, oh, sure. So, yeah, so if she owns a home, you know, it's a rental property, she could put her son as an owner and then it would get passed to him, like, tax-free, if she were to die, like, would it work like that? Um, the again, the, there wouldn't unless she has five point two five million dollars as an estate of her own, and if she's married, ten point five million dollars. Um, unless they're at that cap um, on a federal tax level, they're not. Their estate is not going to be taxed for any transfer. Um, each state is different, though. But so, I mean, like, like, will the son be taxed? Yeah. So. Um, in terms of what happens when he gains this asset that he didn't used to have, um, there might be some taxable event there for him. Um, kind of depends on, uh, you know, kind of depends on whether he was, uh, whether he was part of that before, whether he was on, whether he was on the property at all before, mm-hmm. um, where it gets complicated and where you want to talk to, uh, an estate planner before you plan on doing this is what are the benefits do you get if you transfer those assets or if you assign him as a joint owner now 
do you get the step up in basis? Um, should you wait until you pass it on an inheritance? Is that more beneficial from a tax standpoint? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the sorts of things they can answer. In some ways, it's beneficial to transfer assets in a lifetime. In some ways, not so much. So I have a big question that I think a lot of people are either asking themselves right now or will have come up. And that is, uh, you know, we talk about assets being transferred. What about debts? Mm. I mean, transferring, transferring. Like if my dad dies and has a ton of credit card debt, like does that go to somebody else in the family or does the credit card company just have to take a loss on it? Well, so they get um, primacy in claims anytime there's a probate process. So if, if your dad has, you know, 100 grand in debt, um, but he's also passing down $120,000 in assets to his family members. Those creditors get first hack at those okay. at those assets. So they would mm. claim they would they would file a claim in the probate process saying that he owes us X amount. So we're we're taking whatever um, whatever is being passed down first, and then the surviving beneficiaries would get the remaining. Now, if someone's debts exceed their assets, then it's just a wash. Then okay. The, the creditors claim debts to the extent that their assets being passed down. Yeah. Okay. It's so you'll never get saddled with a bunch of debt that a family member had or something. Unless you're a co-signer. Yeah. Um, okay. Which does happen, right? So yeah. sometimes people become co-signers for their kids or for their sisters or whomever. If they co-signed on it, then and and that other co-signee passed away also, then they're on the hook for it. Um, yeah. But but no, yeah, you, you're not you're not generally on the hook for it. Um, unless there was some indication that you intended to be uh, subject to it by being a co-signer. Gotcha. So um, there's this whole uh, thought that like when you die, like you're almost like a, a burden to the people who remain because like there's like a burial cost or a cremation cost and then like all these like related I died costs. Can you – like is that something that you might put into your will like – draw upon my assets to pay for my funeral like how do you prepare for something like that yeah that's usually one of the first provisions you know they uh, one of the first provisions is that um any costs from your last illness and from your funeral are going to come off the top of the probate estate they most folks generally don't want their executors going out of pocket for that sort of thing so that's one of the first things written in in a lot of wills is that uh those costs are going to come from the probate estate now there's a long probate process, um, which there can be, um, you know, usually it's more of a reimbursement to the executor for covering those costs. Um, those, that, that burden that you're talking about, feeling like you not wanting to be a burden. I mean, that's one of the big, um, premises for, uh, you hear about the living trusts or revocable trusts. Um, that's one of the big premises for doing, for, uh, preparing a trust is your, simplifying the probate process for folks on the back end. Um, so that is a genuine concern. And especially it seems like as people get older, I mean, maybe we're, when we're young, we're just inconsiderate and we don't care. But uh, for the older folks, they don't want to be a burden. So that's one of the big, uh, that's one of the big motivators for, for going through the trust process. It makes sense. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, when we're young, we don't think about it as much. No. It's right. such a far off, you know, impossibility. But as we get closer, it becomes more of a concern. Yes, we are invincible. Uh, <laughs> it must prove until proved otherwise. I don't um, know about you guys, but I'm invincible. 
Yeah, it, uh, it's definitely not on the top five list of concerns for most. Um, it seems like mostly uh, males, in my experience, too. Um, it's mostly guys that, that don't really care about it that much. And mm. a lot of times, it's uh, whether it's new moms or um, or whatever, it's, it's generally the wife that, that initiates um, the will process. That's an overgeneralization, obviously. But she knows she's going to outlive us because we live <laughs> that's like right. assholes. That's right. So. She wants to. That's right. That's right. Is that why yeah. our life expectancy is shorter, Andrew? Because <laughs> we live like assholes. <laughs> that, that's the that's the medical terminology for it. But we're just out drinking and fighting too much. <laughs> that's right. So, um, what else like typically goes into wills? I mean, like if I showed up um, to your private practice when when you had one, uh, like what would we kind of do? Like what would you advise me to do? Because I just want to prepare for death, but I I know nothing. Yeah. So if you know, the the big question mark is whether you have kids and whether those kids are minors. Um, that's one of the chief concerns. And that's one of the things that brings people in generally is if they have a, you know, if they have a one-year-old at home and they start thinking about uh, whether their crazy sister-in-law is going to watch their kids or something like that, you know, <laughs> it's, that's one of the, the chief concerns, um, not just for what happens with the money, but who's, who's going to be the guardian for those children. So, uh, unless you write down um, who's who's going to essentially take af- take care of the kids if you pass away, if you and your spouse pass away, um, probate court's kind of just left to figure it out on its own. Mm. Um, so the the question of whether there's kids or not is usually the kind of chief question when when folks come in to get an estate plan done or to get a will done. Okay, and if they have minor kids, the the guardian piece is a big part of it. You know, where are your kids going to go if you're to pass away, if you and your spouse were to pass away? And then also, how are we going to give them your assets? It's generally a horrible idea to give an 18-year-old $400,000. Um, I would probably not make it back from Vegas alive myself if I was, when I was 18 years old. Um, and I think most most uh, kids are that same way. Um you know, it's, it's, that's a really tough time, uh, for decision-making, you know, when you're 18 to, to 22 or whatever. And those decisions get amplified when you can throw a bunch of money into the mix too. So, um, we set up some sort of controlled mechanism to distribute money to those kids. Um, and we establish a trust in those wills. We name a trustee who can make decisions, you know, kind of a objective removed trustee who can make decisions of how to distribute money to these kids. Mm. Um, and so it's usually things like, uh, you know, tuition, that's a valid expense for a trustee to distribute money to a kid, medical expenses, no brainer rent. Sure. Um, but riverboat gambling trips, things like that would probably not be a valid expense (laughs) out of the trust account. Um, so those are the sorts of things that, that really get focused on uh, in that first meeting is, you know, like I said, do you have kids? How do you want the, how do you want their assets to be distributed? Things like that. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the, the will piece. That's the property piece. But the other big part that usually goes into an estate plan um, is whether we're going to set up powers of attorney for folks. Um, and there's financial powers of attorney and there's healthcare powers of attorney. Um, and a power of attorney is basically just naming somebody to make your decisions for you. Okay. Um, and if you're incapacitated, you know, if you're in a car accident, in a coma for any period of time, um, your creditors don't care. Uh, your mortgage company doesn't really care. So those bills still need to get paid. Um, and 
it's generally a very good idea to name somebody who would be good at that particular job. Usually it's a spouse, but it can be a brother, parent, whomever. Um, it's a good idea to name those folks now while we're still mentally competent. Right. If, we, if we don't have that in place, then it requires a court order generally to name somebody to be your agent. And that's not the sort of court hearing you want to go through if somebody's sitting in a coma in a hospital somewhere. Um, so that in conjunction with the healthcare power of attorney where, like I said, we're naming somebody to make decisions for us, naming somebody to speak for us. Um, essentially with a healthcare power of attorney, you're allowing them to make medical decisions on your behalf. Um, those are the additional main things that usually work into any sort of estate plan meeting. That first meeting is, do you guys need all this stuff? Who would you want to name? Um, are there yeah. obvious choices? Um, kind of getting the general layout of, who, what, which responsible people exist in the client's life, you know, um, okay. those are going to be the initial questions at that sit down. So healthcare power of attorney, you know, that seems kind of like a no brainer. You pick your spouse or something. Um, how far removed do people generally go with financial power of attorney in the event that like they're the person who makes all the financial decisions and maybe their immediate family doesn't exactly know much about money. Are there instances where people will name like a lawyer as their financial power of attorney or is it always like family? No, not generally. Yeah, it's, it's usually family. Um, okay. Usually it's, you know, spouses, the first um, kind of most obvious one. And in a lot of cases with spouses, like with joint checking or online banking, it's less and less needed. Um, but spouses are the obvious choice to begin with. And then the backup is usually like a parent or a brother or something like that. And, and I think there's value to naming somebody who knows what you would want to do. Um, okay. Kind of knows what you think valid expenses are or whether you want to be hooked up to machines forever and ever or whether, you, you know, somebody yeah. who knows your values, those are, those are good folks to pick. And even though lawyers or, or accountants or whomever might be good with um, statutory, statutory interpretation or uh, tax implications, they don't really know you as a person. Um, so those are probably not the best folks, um, to pick, at least in my opinion. Um, so it's, I think family members are kind of the obvious choice and it's also who people tend to go to. So, uh, with trusts, what, what sort of things do you recommend? I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want to give the money to them when they're 18, you know, you want to pay for their school. Do you want to give it to them when they're 23, when they're 33? <laughs> like, I, I imagine a lot of people have no, like, even concept of what's appropriate. When right. you're 30 and no dating until you're married. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I think it's, you know, age is maybe kind of a cumbersome, you know, yardstick to use. It doesn't cover everybody, but it seems like um, it's the safest, uh, you know, single criterion you can use you know it's hard to know um uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to envision what other life event you would use as like the um the triggering point where somebody would get all the assets i suppose you could say not until they're married but um that seems kind of weird um but age is usually what's used so um 30 is what i generally recommend for a final distribution age for folks um a lot of clients um who i would see would think that you know maybe 30 is too far out maybe it should be 25 mm. and i would say um you know you whatever you think is fine we'll put that down um but i go into my spiel on why i think 30 is appropriate so when assets are in trust um 
through a will or whether it's through a revocable trust that you create. Um, those assets are generally protected from bankruptcy proceedings, from civil lawsuits. So if somebody, you know, is driving drunk in college and smashes into somebody, um, and they have 300k sitting in a bank account somewhere, those are reachable assets by a civil court in a lot of cases. If it's in trust, though, probably isn't. Okay. So. We're insulating those assets in a pretty volatile time in somebody's life. So if, if um, you leave the final distribution out till age 30, you let them get a lot of the mistakes out of the way um, in their 20s. Not saying all 20-year-olds make mistakes, but... Um, it's like you're above the aggravated assault age. That's basically. right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> More in the white-collar crime uh, type, type uh, um, age group, yeah. Um, while things are in trust, there's sometimes this misconception that it's locked up and the kid can't access it. But like I mentioned before, they're generally available for health, education, maintenance, and support. Those are our four guideposts that, that a trustee uses. If a distribution request meets any of those four, health, education, maintenance, and support, the trustee can make that distribution. And those are pretty broad categories. But because you have that one layer of protection, that trustee determining when to distribute, you've protected those assets. Yeah. Um, and so I, I see very little cost in stringing out a final distribution until age 30 for kids um, just because that money's protected. And generally, it's available for things that parents think are valid, you know, going to college or, you know, yeah. groceries. And that makes sense because, I mean, like, if the parents hadn't have left all that money, you know, it wouldn't be there in the first place. So right. having it available for those, you know, useful and limited purposes makes sense to me. Right. So my question is about um, updating. When you go to write your will, do people ever write it with provisions that anticipate uh, future higher assets or, you know, like if then, like if this happens, then that happens. Um, and then beyond that, like I've heard about people going to update their will. When should you go update your will? Is it for big life events or is it because like you notice you have a lot more assets and you might need to change things? Mm -hmm. I, I think a, I think a big life event is is a good reason to at least check in with um, whoever drafted your will for you just to see whether it needs to be changed. Um, Sometimes uh, if people have a second or third or fourth kid, they'll, they'll need to know whether they need to update their will. And generally the answer is no, they don't need to because anybody who's writing a, a good will is going to say, is going to name whatever children are available or alive at that time. And then build in a provision that if they have any more kids, then those additional kids just split the assets at a set equal percentage. Among okay. all the beneficiaries. So there's not a need as you have more kids generally to go update your will. If, but the big life event part, if, if there is a big change, um, you know, you get divorced or the person you've named as the guardian um, now no longer wants to have additional kids uh, to look after or they move out of the country, things like that. If the people you've named as agents no longer want to help out under the will, then that's probably a good time to update it. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of assets, if you have a significant increase in assets or a kind of a newer, more complex asset picture, you know, if you own businesses now, um, you own additional properties in different states, those are good times to go in and at least get it updated. Um, when you draft a will, the, the goal is to make that your last will that you'll ever need. So you kind of draft it as broadly as possible. 
to envision all these new changes. Um, and as long as your beneficiaries haven't changed or your agents haven't changed that much, that will should still be good. Okay. Um, but there are some some events that that uh, kick in that are going to be um, that are going to make you want to go get a new will done up. Yeah. So uh, I guess my last question was: What is generally the cost of getting a will created, and should you always go to an in-person lawyer to have it done, or I guess what are your thoughts on like these services that do legal documentation online? Yeah. Um, Wills can vary, so you can get a will done by a lawyer um, as cheap as four hundred bucks. Um, I know that because when I started out, that's what I was charging. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, anywhere from four hundred bucks on up to you know fifteen hundred for a married couple. Um, if you're doing kind of a more complex will, and we're just talking about wills, trusts are kind of a different story. Um, so anywhere in that range, and and the. Price can vary depending on the complexity of your asset picture, um, whether there's special needs provisions that need to be put in, you know, if you have a kid with special needs, something like that. Um, as it gets more complex, um, it, it can get a little bit more costly. Um, but I, I'd say four to 400 to 1500 is a good, probably a good idea. Um, in terms of trust, though, trusts tend to be more expensive because there can be more work associated with them. Uh, when an attorney drafts a trust up. So those tend to be a little bit more complex because not only are you drafting the documents, you're also funding the trusts by transferring assets into trust, things like that. So it's a little bit more work, so expect a higher price tag on those. If I'm looking to get a will or or get a trust or both, like – how long do you think this process is? Like, do I literally show up in you know your office or, or someone's, and uh, by the end of the day, like we're good, and I, I just kind of go, go and do my thing? Is this like a multi-week process? It, it can be a multi-week process. So usually, the first meeting is gathering all the info, um, asking all the appropriate questions, finding out where you want your stuff to go, and then it takes you know it, it depending on the attorney's work schedule it can take a day to a week or a couple of weeks to draft everything up and if if we're doing funding you know if we're funding something into a trust uh, that might take even longer um, but it shouldn't be a super strong you know drawn out process um, if you're in a big hurry to do it then uh, you would just let the attorney know um, yeah, that that you for some odd reason even though it's you know even though you're 35 and this is your first will, you're in a big hurry now for some, <laughs> for some weird reason. Um, you can let them know that it shouldn't take too long to, mm. to draft one. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, in terms of other online services that, that draft wills, um, I used to kind of, uh, think, think legal zoom was awful and, and all that stuff. I, but I, I guess I've calmed down a little bit and, and I think it's, it's good to provide, entry level wills for folks who, you know, if, if the price tag is 500 bucks and they're just like, you know, I'd rather have a PS4, I'm not going to do that. Um, I think something's better than nothing. And so if $99 is their sweet spot, then, you know, so be it. But I would just remind, you know, remind everybody that when they're going through legal zoom or one of these similar, uh, companies, it's often just a document pre- preparation service. So, okay. Um, you're not running anything through an attorney most of the time. You're just giving them your name and giving them your uh, the information of your beneficiaries and telling them which state you live in, and they're just using their document database to fill in 
all that mm-hmm. stuff for the appropriate state. If you're comfortable okay. with that, you know, if you don't have a super complex setup and $99 is what's going to get you a will, then, you know, so be it. Um, okay. But if you have a super complex setup and you have some involved questions that that um, are going to have a significant impact on your kids or whatever, I think going to an attorney is a, a, the right move personally. Okay. Yeah, uh, because because uh, any of the other companies are not not going to be of much assistance. Um, that makes yeah. sense to me because then you're getting I don't know you're able to tell somebody who's very knowledgeable what exactly you want and they're not just running you through an algorithm essentially. Right, right, and and I I got in I got in some trouble when I was first starting out as an estate planner and wrote this blog post about how terrible legal zoom is and. LegalZoom actually commented on my blog and <laughs> called me out for only having practice for seven months when I wrote it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I've calmed down a little bit since then. And like I said, I think it's better that lots of people have wills rather than fewer people. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, there's, as you said, you're, you want your documents to be customized, you know, cause your situation is going to be different. Um, if you didn't, if you're fine with the standard, then you might also just be fine with the state intestacy laws too. You know what I mean? Um, so okay. I, I think to the extent you want someone to look at your situation and, and apply, uh, apply, uh, documents accordingly, you might just bite the bullet and pay the couple hundred bucks to go see a lawyer. Okay. Do you know if there's a like an easy to read resource where people can go look at their own states and testacy laws to see if they're adequate right now for them? Yeah, I think a lot of different um, bar websites have some good resources on uh, you know what that particular state's laws are. A lot of times they're geared towards explaining what a will is, things like that. Um, there's probably in most states there's probably some sort of uh, explanation whether it's on an attorney's uh, blog page or something um, explaining what the particular state intestacy laws are um, there's no one central resource that I know of though that would explain all that would explain all the ins and outs of each particular state but I guess I would check with your state bar website and the state okay. you live in um, and then beyond that just kind of read up on local lawyers blogs um, and they might have they might have some good stuff out there. Cool. All right, Andrew, do you have any extra questions before we start wrapping up? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> before you, we started recording, you had mentioned something about <laughs> Susie Orman. <laughs> I did. So I I I think what we were talking about is is the confusion that. Um, folks come in with uh, when they step in to talk to an estate planning lawyer, and a lot of times it's uh, the first the first statement will be "I need a trust" or um, "I need a." They'll call them a living trust, which um, is kind of a big signal to me that they've uh, been watching uh, Susie Orman or they've <laughs> been um, paying attention to uh, financial gurus on what they need. Um, and a lot of times, people who claim they need living trusts, which are uh, you're either called living trust or revocable trust. Um, they don't actually need that. They don't understand why they need those particular things. And I just say, I generally, um, anytime someone gives super general advice like that, like mm-hmm. that everybody needs a trust, um, it's going to be problematic. And that's, I think, a testament to why you should go check with a lawyer because one size fits all advice doesn't work. 
I haven't kept up with Susie Orman in a long time since since I was in the estate planning world, um, and her not just hers, but but a lot of financial world advice is geared towards go go get a living trust. It's to what you need. Um, a lot of times, folks don't need that, um, and, I, and I think it's it's good to at least question why you're being told you need something. Um, so I didn't, I didn't mean to necessarily dime out Susie Orman, but it's kind of more the uh, the financial media applies the the one size fits all advice that that can be problematic. Right. All right, guys. Andrew, you have any other questions? Uh, I think I'm good. I think I'm pretty good. Yeah, I know a heck of a lot more about this stuff than I did when we started. That's for sure. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Cool. And yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to go get a will like tomorrow, but it You're will definitely be on the horizon. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, it might happen in the next couple of years, though. So I'll have to keep it in mind. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, anytime, guys. Yeah. And guys, if you have questions about this topic or other money related topics, you can always email us. Listen, money matters at gmail.com. And uh, Tyler's in the community, so if you yes. ask nicely, you may be able to get him to answer your questions. In there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> only remember. nicely though. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah very nicely. ever ever closer to getting that community to be public. Uh, what do you, how far do you say we would uh, we've come, Andrew? So when this episode goes live, I think we will uh, be in a much less uh, exclusive. We'll, we'll be we'll be in like a, a less closed beta. So okay. we're, we're like controlling the growth, um, making sure that we keep it like high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so in like two to three weeks, uh, I think like another hundred or so people could come in. Awesome. Yeah, I've been looking at the analytics and some of the community pages are actually really highly viewed. Yeah, so it's, it's doing well. It's really uh, blowing away my expectations in like the best way. I'm like really, I, I basically barely sleep now. Because I can't <laughs> <stop doing that>. <laughs> <laughs> must tend to the community. <laughs> Sleep is for the week. Awesome, guys. Uh, also, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen and leave a rating and review. That helps the show out and also just tells us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, where we can improve. And uh, today's review comes from D Cowboys Ten on iTunes, and they say this podcast is an excellent resource for everyone. Both Andrew and Thomas are relatable. And entertaining. One of my favorite aspects of this podcast is their admittance that what they do not know, they're open to willing, or they're open to learning, and will often walk you through the research they are doing. So you, as a listener, are learning with them. And this is refreshing, especially in the world of personal finance. They're open to new ideas and improving methods of, as opposed to having one set way. Just mm. true. <laughs> yeah, I, I like not being the expert. I know, it's, right? It's so much easier. Well, you were telling me there's all these comments on the episode about my car, and now I'm like, oh man. One thing about that uh, I kind of didn't realize when we recorded is like I came in because I wanted to talk about cars and tell my own story Mm. and I didn't really like have in the mindset that I might be recommending the financial aspects of what I did to other people. Mm. So just to clear that up, I don't recommend taking on car loans in every situation and I might have just done it because I let a few of my own wants go ahead of like the staunch no debt mindset that a lot of people want to have but i'm not saying that everyone should do that you know so i knew that i could afford it and i do have enough money that i could pay the car off entirely right now if i wanted to well that might be coming oh yeah while we're on the the heels of thomas's disclaimer can i just add mine real quick just anything i've said please please do not interpret it as legal advice if you think that by listening to me on a podcast i'm 
now your lawyer giving you advice, you're an insane person. <laughs> um, so go, I recommend you go talk to an estate planning lawyer in your particular state if it's something you're going to end up doing. Yes. There you go. Now I feel better. Thank you. Talk to experts who, who know your specific situation. And Thank you. Yes. Same with mine. If you get in the community, they're probably everyone there will probably tell you, set you straight. <laughs> thinking about doing something dumb. All right, guys. Uh, one last thing. Our favorite resources are over at money at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. We got books and apps and all sorts of cool things we like over there. And that's it. So thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see you in the next episode. Later, guys. Later, man. See ya. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Tell your friends about this show.